Good morning, Village Church East. Welcome to Village Church Online. It is great to be back with you. Uh, we spent some time away in Florida, which was wonderful. Things changed dramatically in the time that we were there, but uh, we made it home before quarantine and we're, uh, we are enjoying being, being back. But more importantly, we're enjoying seeing you again. Even though we're not together yet, uh, we are about to uh, get together very, very soon. And uh, you're getting more information as we're learning more information on the details about all of that. Uh, being in a situation where you're hopeless is like, it, it's almost commonplace these days. Uh, because the world changes around us and we, 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 we try and adapt and we try and make do and figure out what our role is to play in the new laws and rules and mandates that come along. Have you ever been in a situation where you, where you just like you just felt hopeless? You, you, you can't, if you move forward, it's sure peril. If you move backwards, there's going to be backlash. When I was in college, I didn't know what God wanted me to do. And I was trying to figure that out. And as he directed me, he made it very clear that he was calling me into serving his church on a full-time basis. Uh, that was a little scary for me. It was something I had not planned on. But I decided I would walk forward with the hopes that he would lead the way. Our first experience in a church was challenging. Um, we had gone to that church as a youth pastor. Beth and I were freshly married. And within two years, they had asked the pastor, the lead pastor, to leave. And they asked me if I could kind of pick up his slack, uh, <laughs> do his work, as well as keep up with my own stuff. And I said, sure, I'd love to do that. That went on for two years. And I got to tell you, I was young enough to say yes but I wasn't strong enough to get through that in a really healthy way. And within a short matter of time, I just felt like I was in burnout stage. They finally called a new pastor and then I just needed to get back into studying and needed some time away from the church. And so we went back to seminary where I got my degree, but it wasn't long before I actually started attending seminary that we were approached by another church. This church was looking for a youth pastor. They had heard that I had had some experience and I was, I was quite frankly anxious to get back into, the, into serving God's church as well. So I started hanging out with the pastor. We started doing our, our get to know you meetings. I started meeting with the church. Everything was going very, very well. Until one night, I went out with the pastor and his wife and we had dinner with some other friends as well. And we got into a theological debate. Well, he and I disagreed on a very minor aspect of theology. And, uh, and as the evening went along, because I had thought we had become friends up to that point, we got to know each other pretty well. I, I was joshing with him. And if you know me, you know that, you know, I, I like to josh. I like to be real, whether I'm on the camera with you or playing on a golf course or having dinner together. And so I got, you know, we, we started joshing around, making, making fun. And I could tell that I had said something that caused him concern because all of a sudden he stopped, stopped speaking. The evening ended, we said goodbye. You know, I didn't want to think a lot of it. I, I didn't think a lot of it. We drove home. I actually asked Beth on the way home. I said, do you think I offended him? She said, no, you didn't offend him. He's senior pastor. He's been senior pastor forever. He's fine. Within a couple of days, I got a call and I went in before that pastor with the, uh, the leadership team beside him, uh, one of the chairman from the board. And uh, he said, Craig, quite frankly, um, I think we're going to, stall our relationship with you as far as bringing you in as a youth pastor. Uh, I have become recently aware of some characteristics in you that cause me concern. And quite frankly, I think you're unteachable. That hit me like a ton of bricks, not just because he was 
evaluating me, I think, unfairly and making a call on my character, which he didn't really know me that well. But also because of the situation we had just been in at this other church where I still was feeling a little like I was coming out of the burnout stage. I remember the drive home to Beth. It was before cell phone, so I didn't call her in the car. I, I was driving home and I could remember just a feeling of sadness and hopelessness. What was going through my mind was God had called me to be a servant in his church on a full-time basis. And I had gone through every open door that he gave me. And out of the two first open doors that I pushed open with him pushing me in that direction, both of them caused me great heartache. And I thought to myself, I can still remember the drive home. I was, I was weeping, I was crying in the car. And I was thinking to myself, if this is what ministry is like, I don't want any part of it. But the problem was I had surrendered to Jesus to serve his church. And I felt like it was in a hopeless situation. If I went forward, there was only more heartache to deal with. But if I went backwards, God would never let me let go of that calling and I would be miserable. Hopeless is a good word to describe how I felt at that time. Damned if I go forward, damned if I go backwards. And needless to say, in God's good graces, he, it wasn't long before he put us into a very healthy church and I had a wonderful relationship um, with his lead pastor there and grew a lot in that situation. But at the time I had no guarantees and I felt so hopeless. I felt so isolated. It was a no win situation. The children of Israel in Exodus now are about to be brought into a no-win situation intentionally by God. And if you read this and you don't understand that God sometimes does this in order to grow us, if, if you miss that aspect of, of the way that God trains us, you could easily look at this and say, God is being mean to them. God is playing games with them. But God is taking these children of Israel, his people, a brand new nation, He's taken them out of Egypt. He's done amazing works of, of miracles to get them out from under the thumb of Egypt. And now he has brought them into a no-win situation. This is where we find ourselves today. A no-win situation that God intentionally puts his people into. They think they're free of Egypt and that only good things lie ahead. And they're about to find out there are a lot of fearful moments right on the horizon. Take your Bibles and turn to Exodus 14, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, Encamp facing the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, They are wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. I want you to know that God has led these children of Israel into a no-win situation. Pharaoh is looking at this and saying, They don't know where they're going. They are shut in by the wilderness. They've walked straight into a trap. The sea lies before them, and all I need to do is come up from the rear. They can't retreat. They can't go forward. I can slaughter them all. Now, I need to tell you at this point, God could have led the children of Israel through a couple of different routes. There wasn't just one route to get them out of Egypt and heading toward the promised land. They could have gone the route of the Philistines. Now, you've heard of the Philistines because you've probably heard of Goliath. Remember David and Goliath? Goliath was a Philistine. And he was from the sea. They, they think they came from the sea people. So they dwelt on the sea. They were in the northern part. You can kind of see it on the map here. They were in the northern part. So they could have went through the land of the Philistines. But as you well know, that had dangers in and of itself. There could have been some Goliaths up there waiting for them. But that wasn't the only alternative. There was a very popular route called the trade route. 
and this was a little south of the way of the Philistines. This trade route was the typical route people would use to trade between their countries and Egypt. This is likely the way that Joseph and his family came down to Egypt. The problem with this is there were all kinds of Egyptian soldiers that guarded this trade route because they wanted to make sure that people were kept safe and their possessions were intact when they got to where they were going in order to trade. And so if the Israelites went this way and Pharaoh changed his mind, Egypt, these Egyptian soldiers, would engage them in battle and they would be forced to fight. So the route that God chooses for his people is a little south of that a route that no one took because it was blocked by the sea. The Bible calls this the Yom Suf, the way of the sea. This would put the children of Israel in a vulnerable position, like I said, sea in front of them and whoever wants to trap them behind. There was no escape route in the route that God took them and, and they would be at sea level. So whoever's coming in from the rear would have height advantage. Militarily, this, was a disastrous choice. Verse four, and I will harden Pharaoh's heart. This is what God says to Moses, and he will pursue them and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. You see, God wasn't done with the Egyptians yet. And God lets, uh, God lets Moses in on the plan. God says to Moses, I'm gonna intentionally hem you in and then I'm gonna harden Pharaoh's heart to come after you. There's something bigger going on here because it's God's plan. It's not the Israelites plan. It's not Moses plan, it's God's plan. He leads them to where he needs them to be so that his plan can be accomplished. God is not holding back any information from Moses or the people or us. John Kurtz says this, the answer is not cryptic, but crystal clear. God decided, desired to display his power in the salvation of his people so he would be greatly glorified. And so what does God do? He hardens Pharaoh's heart. And probably for Pharaoh, he didn't know this was what's happening. He just was used to being this rebellious individual. When God told him to do something, he said, what God? Didn't pay attention to, to Yahweh. So for Pharaoh, it would have been like, I don't want to look like the loser here. What have I done? I got to chase these people down. Moses made me look like an imbecile. I can't live like that. Look at how the people are looking at me now. Or maybe he's thinking, we just lost 600,000 workers. How are we going to make our economy function? I'm not willing to, to change everything we've done just because these people needed to be free. I'm going to go get them. And if I can't get them, I'm going to kill them. Pharaoh takes 600 chosen chariots, the next few verses say. He takes 600 chosen chariots and he takes a bunch of other chariots. The Bible rarely gives us details as far as numbers go. Sometimes it does, but it's not as often as we wish. And the reason is because when it does, when God writes numbers down, he wants us to understand there's something significant and in this case, there's something significant about 600 choice chariots and other chariots. God is bringing the whole army of Egypt to chase down the Israelites and to chase them into the sea. He brought the best chariots, the best officers, the best military might that he had. Egypt was the USA military of the day. And he was coming after a bunch of slaves that were not 
fit to fight. They had no military training at all, and they had very few weapons. Uh, this is like the untouchable scene. You remember the untouchable scene where, where uh, uh, De Niro said, I want him, about, uh, uh, about the cop that was chasing him down, he said, I want him dead. I want his family dead. I want his house burned to the ground. What is happening is Pharaoh has lost his mind, and he is sending his entire army after these slaves. This is like bringing... This is like bringing tanks and Apache helicopters to a knife fight. Israel would be like sitting ducks against the finest trained army in the world. So my question at this point, and your question is probably, why would God do this? He's already destroyed the idols, the gods of Egypt. He's already destroyed Pharaoh's power and his view, lofted view of himself. He's already destroyed all that. Why does he do this again? Why does he put his own people in another no-win situation? And here it is, church. God loves to deliver those who have no hope. God loves to deliver those who have no hope. Look at that. In verse 9, the Egyptians pursued them. All Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army, <laughs> that's all of them, they overtook them and encamped at the sea. They want, they want Israel to see they're doomed. They take their time. They ride up slowly. They set up camp. They look down on the Israelites and they wait for them to grow in their fear. Fear is an amazing commodity on the battleground. Verse 10. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them. Do you think the ground was actually shaking as they rolled up on them. Here's what happened. They feared greatly, and the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. Church is a hopeless, no-win situation. They can't go forward. They can't go backward. And the result is fear. This is the natural reaction of our bodies. You get into a no-win situation, what's your natural reaction? Flight or fight, right? Well, they can't run, there's nowhere to go, and they can't fight, they're surely going to lose. So they can do neither. So what do they do? Well, they find someone to blame. Verse 11, they said to Moses, is it because there's no graves in Egypt that you've brought us away here to die in the wilderness? Why have you done this to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Verse 12, is not this what we said to you when we were in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For I would have been better, for it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. What they're saying to, to, to Moses is, you remember when this whole thing started and you told Pharaoh to let us go and he made our lives harder? It's just better if you had called it then because we were mad at you then and then, and then you gave us false hope so that we would be free. And now we're in the same place again. And by the way, they rewrite history here because not one of them wanted to stay in Egypt. They cried out to God for release from Egypt and God provided it. The problem was they couldn't see what God was doing. All they could see was a no-win situation. And it made them hopeless and fearful. They had seen God work. We'd spent many weeks on this. They'd seen Moses pull off the unthinkable. They'd seen the miracles of God that were unexplainable. 
They had the presence of God right in front of them in a cloud and a pillar of fire. Cloud by day, fire by night. They knew God was with them. But fear is a powerful drug. How many of us have seen the power of God in our lives and got into a situation we think is a no-win situation and begin to doubt whether God is really still with us? This is not an unusual human concept. It's not an unusual human emotion. We've been blessed in our lives over and over and over. If we took pages, we'd fill them up with God's faithfulness to us in the past. And yet when it comes up to a really difficult situation, and this was a really difficult situation, we think to ourselves, maybe God has changed his mind. Maybe he's turned his back. Maybe he's not with us, but we know he is. It's just that our hopeless situation causes us to do sometimes not so smart things. We give in to fear. But God never changes his strategy, church. God loves to deliver those who see no hope. This is what he loves to do. Verse 13, Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you will never see again. The Lord, verse 14, the Lord will fight for you. And you only have to be silent. Moses is giving them a rousing speech, a rousing speech in face of certain disaster, but he doesn't hone in on their abilities. He hones in on God's abilities. Remember, he says to the people, God is working a great plan. He started this a long time ago. He keeps on working in our lives. You just have to be still. Don't fret. Don't allow frenzy to take over. He uses three particular ways of saying this. He says, fear not. No, I know this is a reasonable response, Moses says, but don't let fear win. God is still fighting for you. God has not lost his place in the story of your life. Number two, stand firm. Don't turn back. Don't throw your hands up. God has brought you to such a time as this. Go all the way with him. And number three, see the salvation of God. See the salvation of the Lord. This is pure gospel. The word here used is Yeshua. Do you know what Yeshua is? You ever heard that word before? It's a, it's a Hebrew word, Yeshua. Do you know what Jesus' name was? We say Jesus because that's our English vernacular. But Jesus in the Hebrew is Yeshua. This is Jesus' name. Why? Because the angel Gabriel told Mary, call him Yeshua for he will save his people from their sins. Brothers and sisters, church, listen, God is all about saving those who have no hope. This is the crux of our gospel. Moses is not giving these guys a pep talk. Moses is giving them the gospel. God will fight for you. God is a God whose business it is to save those who see no hope. This is what Jesus does for us, church. This is how we begin our relationship with Jesus Christ. We recognize our sin is taking us to very bad places and in eternity apart from God. And we cry out to God and we say, save us, Yeshua, save us. And Yeshua, the one who saves, comes down, enters our lives and brings us hope. Not because of anything that we can do. We're in a no-win situation, but because of what Jesus did on the cross of, of, of Calvary. By the way, 
This sit there and watch what God will do doesn't mean sit there and do nothing. Look at verse 15. The Lord said to Moses, why are you crying out to me? <laughs> because if people cry out to Moses, Moses cries out to God. And God says to Moses, why are you crying out to me? Tell the people of Israel, go forward. Lift up your staff, stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it. The people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. Apparently Moses himself was feeling hopeless. He didn't see a way out of it either. Remember, we, we have heard this story lots and lots of times. We know what's going to happen. They have no idea. Stay faithful, God says to Moses. Stay faithful. You can still trust me. Walk to the sea. Get your arm up. Open that sea. Get the people moving. Be silent doesn't mean stay in your basement and play video games and wait for God to make your life great. Be silent means be faithful in what God has called you to do and be ready for when he calls you to move. You see, we're just afraid that God has lost control of the situations. But God says, I didn't make, you, I didn't make any mistakes. You're right where I need you to be. I didn't make a mistake in bringing you to the sea. You think you're hemmed in. Just watch what I will do. God's answer to our frenzy is don't be afraid. Stay where you are. You don't need to do anything but remain faithful in your calling. Peter went through this when he was in the boat. Remember that story? Peter with Jesus in the boat. And at the time of his life, Peter was kind of a brash individual. He was anxious to, to do and experience the thing that, that he believed Jesus had for him. A storm came up. He's in the boat with the other disciples. They're in fear of their lives. Jesus comes walking out on the water. Don't tell me Jesus doesn't have a sense of humor, right? Jesus comes for a stroll in the middle of the storm on the water. <laughs> Peter sees it. All the guys in the boat see it. They think it's a ghost. And Jesus says, don't be afraid. It's me. Peter's amazed as the rest of them are. But Peter said, if it's you, call me. And I want to do that too. Let me walk on the water. Jesus said, come on, come on out. Peter walks on the water with Jesus, but you remember what happened? He took his eyes off Jesus and he feared and he began to drown. He began to fall into the water. You see, when he took his eyes off Jesus, he felt like he was in a no-win situation. And sometimes we look at Peter and we get, we get really down on Peter for doing this. But I want you to know, Peter at least did something. Peter at least tried to be faithful. The people that just sat down and did nothing never got the experience to walk on the water. They watched Peter walk on the water. I wonder how many times in their, their lives after that, they thought to themselves, stupid, stupid, stupid. I should have got out there too. You see, when you don't know the end game and, the, and it seems unfixable, followers of Jesus Christ need to remember he is in control. He doesn't forget about us. He doesn't lose place on the pages of our lives. Faithfully practicing kingdom ethics always and remembering that God will fight for us. This is what 4610, Psalm 4610 means. Be still and know that I am God. Stillness before God doesn't mean, doesn't mean frenzied sinfulness, frenzied fear. It means quiet faithfulness. What do we normally do in the face of hopelessness? We freak out. We get frenzied. And God was teaching Israel and us a new ethic of kingdom life. He is saying, I can be trusted. 
I'm working on a different scale. I'm not done with the story of Pharaoh yet. You think it's over, but I got more to do. Trust me. And you'll be amazed at what I use you for in this, in this plan of life. Stop fretting. Be still. Let me work what I'm working out. God is training Egypt out of the Israelites. Verse 21, Moses stretched his hand over the sea. The Lord drove back the sea by a strong east wind all that night and made the sea dry land and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground and the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. My amazement is this, that they went forward. Uh, this is one thing to, to, to just hear the plan and the purposes of God and hear the commands of God and not follow them. But it's another thing to actually get up and obey. This is this sand, by the way, has been underwater for a while. This have you ever walked on the beach and your feet kind of go into the beach? into the sand and then and then maybe it's a mucky place that's been underwater for a while and you kind of sink in your sand you try to pull your foot out and your and your shoe comes off or something like that. this is what they're walking in. they call it quick sand for a reason this is water that has been infiltrated by sand and if they walk onto it they're surely going to die in canada where i grew up they have this the bay of fundy that separates nova scotia and new brunswick you can see the other side from from New Brunswick, you can see Nova Scotia and vice versa at some points, but the tide goes out and all that's left is acres and acres of muck. If you walk out there, you're gonna sink. You will not make it to the other side. This is what lay in front of the Israelites. And I'm amazed that they got up and walked on it. Verse 23, the Egyptians pursued them and went in after them to the midst of the sea. All Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. Every chariot commander had to know that this was dangerous, but they saw the Israelites do it. And so they went in as well, thinking they could do it as well. Immediately as they did, their chariots become clogged in this muck. God lets the water seep through. It's no longer dry ground. Now it becomes quicksand again, starts dragging their chariots down, starts dragging the soldiers down and they freak out. Then they turn around and they try and go back and they try and make it all the way through and they become frenzied. Then the Lord, verse 26, said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea that the water may come back on the Egyptians and on their chariots and on their horsemen. Some people will say, Craig, well, th there's no sea here. Like, like this is just a sea of reeds. Other people will say, no, it was a big mountainous sea. It was the, the Red Sea. I, I don't know where you are on this, but uh, sometimes I think to myself, sometimes we, we try and fix the Bible so that it makes more sense. But I got to tell you, I, I got to think it's a, it's a big sea because it seems a lot easier to drown an entire army in a sea than in a foot of quicksand or wet swampland. Either way, God destroys the Egyptian army. And here's the thing. What is the greatest miracle in all of this? The greatest miracle is not that the sea split or that it dried up so that everybody could walk on it. The greatest miracle is that God's people didn't have to lift a finger for the Egyptian army to be decimated by, by a, the, the God of a group of slaves. 
Not only can you be sure day and night will God care for you with the pillar and the fire in front of them, but now they know God will protect them. God will fight for them. Verse 10, trust. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. All of this happened to annihilate Pharaoh's power and to glorify God. And fear gave way in the Israelite lives to faith. Verse 31. Israel saw the great power the Lord used against the Egyptians, so the people feared the Lord, and they believed the Lord, and they believed his servant Moses. Fear is replaced with faith. So are you facing a no-win situation, church? You might feel like that a lot these days. Has it begun to steal away your joy? Has it replaced your joy with hopelessness? Has hopelessness opened the door to fear? I'm hoping you've been refreshed in the truth of God's word today in the gospel. And my, my challenge to you and to me is how do we feel like we can win in a no-win situation? Let me remind you again, God loves to deliver those who see no hope. Rest in this good news, church. God wins. It was hard for Israel to believe when they were hemmed in at the sea. They were fearing, they were fretting, they were complaining to Moses. They, they had been released with their families, walking by their sides, their firstborn saved from the angel of death, and now they were going to die at the sea by the hands of the Egyptians after all. But in one day, things changed incredibly. And keep in mind, church, this was a night crossing. This was not during the day. These people in their fearful mode would have to trust God enough to get up and walk through this dry ground, this into certain death in the middle of darkness. But things changed in one day. God is watching over them and God is protecting them and God is fighting for them. And we know the same thing to be true for us today. Usually when it looks like God is losing, he's doing something great that's going to shock us. Psalm 73, 26, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. His means of salvation may not boost your bank account, but God always wins. Evil will be defeated. God will be the victor. We are simply called to be faithful. God loves to deliver those who see no hope. That is the message of the gospel. In fact, when you get to the end in Revelation 21, the last book of the Bible, it literally says in the last two chapters that God wins, God wins, God wins. God will be with us. He will be our God. We will be his people. He has passed. Old things have passed away. He's making all things new. Biblical writers constantly pull on this theme of hope in the middle of despair, hope in the middle of hopelessness, hope in the middle of no-win situations. When we read this, we are meant to find the same thing. This story of the Exodus, the Bible writers constantly pulled, pulled out of Scripture and said, remember, this is who God is. Jesus used this several times in his teaching. Hope in the middle of hopelessness. Purpose in the middle of persecution. Strength in the middle of suffering. When, when, they, when the first slaves came over, they were given a Bible. It was called the Slave Bible. And this Slave Bible... Our typical Bible has 66 books in it. Slave Bible had 14 books in it. They redacted a bunch of books out of the Slave Bible because they did not want the slaves to have any hope 
of rescue. And one of the things they redacted from the slave Bible was every story about the Exodus. Why? Because, because the, the slave owners didn't want to give false hope, didn't want to give any hope. Do you realize you have to take apart most of the Bible in order to portray a God who does not bring you hope? Why is this important? Why is this so important to us? Because Jesus loves to remind us, church, that he wins. John 16, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. You may be in a present situation waiting for the deliverance that Christ will bring you. Don't give up hope. Remain faithful in the little things. The Exodus story is a pep talk to remind us God has already won the battle. Through Jesus Christ's death on the cross, sin has been destroyed. Evil is pressed in on us on all sides. We are constantly feeling like we're at the Red Sea, but we need to think about it like we're victors already. Jesus has overcome the world, and so we too can overcome the world. Our victory is because he has already won the victory. Because he won on the cross, we, the Bible says, are more than conquerors. And so remain faithful. That's number two. Be faithful in the middle of blank. <laughs> Why did I put blank there? Because I don't know what you're going through. But I would encourage you, be faithful in the middle of blank. Whatever it is you're going through, put it in that blank. Don't be anxious about tomorrow. Don't give freedom to frenzy because it will lead to an unfaithful heart. Don't let frenzied worry overcome you. Watch, stand firm, be still. These Israelites had a realistic reason to be frenzied. But remember, he's told them and he tells us, he doesn't forget about us. He doesn't lose page on our lives. Frenziness should, frenziness should lead to despair, uh, to deeper faithfulness, not demonstrations of despair. You see, God is training Egypt out of the Israelites and God is training the world out of believers. Frenziness is what comes natural. We want to freak out. The solution to go against frenziness is simple faithfulness daily. It's easy to get lost in the frenziness of our world. The world constantly doesn't make sense. Don't you agree with that? Especially when you see the lid off crazy, like at certain times, like more than others. Especially when you read what people are saying online. It seems like the lid is off crazy. But the last thing believers should do is let their actions and thoughts be known in a way that mirrors Egypt. It's okay to make your voice heard and we should stand up for justice but don't let it lead you into place where you mirror the world, not mirroring that which you've been taken out of. John 17, Jesus prayed this for us. I've given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I don't ask you to take them out of the world, Jesus prays to the Father, but that you keep them, that's us, keep them from the evil one. As you sent me into the world, I am sending them into the world. It's not a mistake that you're in a world that seems a little crazy at time. But Craig, I don't, I don't see things changing. How am I supposed to deal with all these changes? Fight or flight, this is what comes natural, right? Fight or flight. 
Remember, our fight is not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, spiritual forces, and heavenly places. Every time we post on Facebook and look like the world, we are going in a wrong direction. I need to make that really clear. No one has ever come to Christ by losing a debate on Facebook. This is not what God calls us to do. Our fight is not with the world. Our fight is within. The question is, can we bite our tongue? Do we need to repent? Do we need to analyze where we're at? Do we need to review what we've said? And are we loving always? This is what God calls us to do. Israel was ready to retreat in hopelessness and frenzy and they would surely die. So they had nothing else to do but attack Moses. The person that you disagree with is just somebody you disagree with, not somebody you stop loving. Moses had to stretch out his hand to separate the water. He had to stretch out his hand to make the water come back. He, he had to move the people forward. Israel had to move into certain death in order to be saved. Let him do his thing and remain faithful. Love always, church. This is God's answer to our hopelessness. Let me pray with you. Father, read this account of Israel stuck in a no-win situation with hopelessness reigning all around them. Reminds us, Father, way too often of where we feel like we are in life at times. Our natural instinct is to fight or flight. But Father, I pray that we would be able to be a light for Jesus, a light for you in this dark generation. Let us not engage in the tactics of Egypt so that we can make our voices heard, but let us quietly remain faithful daily, being your hands, your feet, your heart to those around us, and let us love others as you loved us. In this way, Father, let the church shine in a world that needs hope, but experiences hopelessness way too often. Use us, Father, to change the world for your glory. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.